Good morning. My name is Kathy. I got to teach last week, but for those of you who I have not gotten to meet yet, maybe you couldn't be here last week. I'm a part of the women's ministry staff here at Christ Chapel. Prior to that, I've um, served also on the student ministry staff here at Christ Chapel, and so I know a lot of your kids and grandkids and think they're all great. Um, today we're going to be looking at Priscilla, and I am excited to be doing that. When I was in college at 9 o'clock on Monday nights, um, I would get in my car and head over to Henry and Celia's house. A group of girls would meet, and we would sit on Celia's floor, and she would lead a Bible study for us. She, at that time, was the mother of three small children. She'd been a teacher and a guidance counselor. Her husband, Henry, was a lawyer and a judge in, in Columbia, South Carolina, which is where I'm from. They were also the volunteer college directors of our college ministry at church. It was a large, influential college ministry. I loved and learned a lot from Henry and Celia, and eventually, sometime during the time that I was in college, a man from our church, who was a good friend of Henry and Celia's, was elected the governor of South Carolina, and that individual asked Henry if he would be the chief legal counsel, which is one of the top three staff positions for the governor, and Henry said yes. And um, eventually, I graduated from college, moved out here to Texas to go to seminary, and a couple years after I did, Henry and Celia made a decision that to many might would be interesting. At this time, they had four small kids. Henry, again, was the chief legal counsel, a very secure, pretty powerful position in our state. And he quit his job, and Henry and Celia and their four kids moved to California for Henry to go to seminary. Henry graduated from seminary, and they moved over to France. And they lived in southern France and tried to take the gospel to a spiritually impoverished country in North Africa and saw some great things happen, actually, while they were there. And it's interesting to me, as I thought, of Priscilla and Aquila and how they moved around for the sake of the gospel. I couldn't help but think a whole lot about Henry and Celia and the decisions that they had made. And a question that I wonder if Priscilla and Aquila ever got or Henry and Celia ever got, and I'm sure if no one actually asked them this, they thought it. There had to be people that thought, have you lost your mind? You're quitting what job to go where? To do what? To risk what? With your family? And if we are all honest, there have been points in our spiritual journey where whether we've said it out loud or not, we've looked at another Christian and something they've done and we've thought that in our head. We've thought, they're a little bit nuts, they've lost their mind. And if you're even more honest, you'll admit there have been moments when the Lord in his word has looked at you and said, here's what I want you to do. And you've looked back up at him and thought, have you lost your mind? You want me to do what? If you have ever thought that of someone or of the Lord, which you have, then this is a lesson for you. I want us to look at maybe a little bit about why Priscilla did what she did. And had she lost her mind, had she lost her grip on reality? As we look at that, kind of what I want us to do is begin to kind of look at situations from perhaps a different perspective. For example, um, just to kind of begin to illustrate what we're going to do, if I were to come in here and say to you, I just met this guy outside and he cut his arm off, you would think, has he lost his mind? Has he lost his grip on reality? You would think, what false sense of reality is this guy living in that you would cut off your arm? However, if you'll remember about five years ago in Utah, there was a gentleman named Aaron Ralston who was hiking alone and got his arm caught under an 800-pound boulder. After four days, he ran out of water, 
And to save his life, he had to take out his pocket knife and cut his arm off. Now, when we look at it as if there was no reason behind it, it looks a little silly when we look at the situation like this. But when we look at it straight on, with a sense of reality, with all the information, does it look like he's crazy? No. It makes perfect sense. We're going to look at the life of Priscilla today and consider some things that might make us or others think she has lost her mind. But in reality, she hasn't. The first thing we're going to see about Priscilla comes in Acts chapter 18. Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he runs into Priscilla and Aquila in the city of Corinth. They are all tent makers, all believers in Jesus. And when he leaves Corinth, he takes Priscilla and Aquila with them. They eventually end up in Ephesus. Paul leaves Ephesus for a while while Priscilla and Aquila stay. And in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila run into a man named Apollos. Apollos was um, an eloquent speaker. He would teach from the scriptures, but he only knew about Jesus up to the point of John's baptism. He didn't know about the full ministry of Jesus. He didn't know Jesus had gone to die on the cross for sins or that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead and that by faith in him we could have a relationship with the Father, that our sins could be dealt with. He didn't know that part of the story. And we see Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18, and it says, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Apollos, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They took Apollos and said, let me tell you the whole story. Now, there's a, a feeling that many have, I've called it a false sense of reality, where people today might think that we can define God, I can define God and how I want to know I'm how I want. And if you were to live back there with Priscilla and Aquila and you knew Priscilla and Aquila had pulled Apollos aside and said, hold on, we need to explain to you the whole story. There's some people that might look and go, come on, he knows what he believes, it's okay for him. You don't need to tell him what to believe. I mean, there's, there's many ways to this one God and, and it's okay. Come on, don't make a big deal about it. You're just making way too big a deal about something that doesn't really matter. They kind of looked at people, maybe even some people today might look and say, if you're going to stand up for Jesus, you've kind of just lost your mind a little bit. Come on, everyone knows that all religions are kind of the same and it's okay. Well, if you believe that, then it might look like Priscilla had lost her mind a little bit. But I want to look at what reality really is. And to do that, we're actually going to get all these realities out of 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. We're not going to look at every verse in this verse sheet, but I wanted you to have it because everything we talk about that should be driving our, our life, these realities, we're going to see here in this. And so if you want to underline or circle or whatever you want to do, it's okay. 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. That was the place Priscilla and Aquila had lived. And so I am confident that as Paul expresses his thoughts here, which are really the Lord's thoughts to the church at Corinth, that Priscilla and Aquila would agree with every one of them. And so we can begin to see a little bit of what Priscilla may have been thinking. What is the reality that may have driven her to go to Apollos and to explain to him fully the way of Jesus? Look with me and let's see what this reality is. It's that God defines who he is and how we know him. And that is our only hope. God defines who he is. God defines how we know him. And that's our only hope. Well, where do I get that? In chapter um, 4, up at the beginning, in verse 2, it says, We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
God has spoken. God has defined some things. As you move on down into verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. There's the gospel, and Paul's defining for us what this gospel is. It's the gospel of Christ. It's not just any gospel. And he tells us about who Jesus is here. Jesus is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but what? Jesus Christ is Lord. He's defining some things about Jesus here. God is defining who he is and the way that we know him. In verse 6 at the end, it says, The knowledge of the glory of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. He's given us a specific knowledge. God defines who he is and the way we know him. In your homework, you may have um, been able to look up some of those verses about how God is or Jesus was fully human and also fully God. And I know some people will say, you know, he was just a really good prophet. He's fully God. And if you believe you can define God how you want, you, you certainly might think that. But I want to see how that rips into the fact that that's our only hope. If we define God in the gospel, how God has defined it. If Jesus is not fully God, then what happens? Then we have a human on a cross trying to give the full payment for the penalty of sins. From an infinite God, this infinite God is pouring out wrath on a human to pay the full penalty for sins. It doesn't work. If Jesus isn't God, if Jesus is an infinite God, he cannot take the wrath for my sins. Which means what? My sins aren't punished. Which means what? I don't know Jesus. I don't have heaven. I'm paying for my sins, and I am eternally separated from God in hell. If I don't believe how God has defined himself, it messes with the real gospel, and it messes with my only hope. Now, understanding that, can we see why it might have been a big deal for Priscilla and Aquila to go explain to Apollos the way of Jesus more accurately? It makes a little sense. We can see why she was a proponent and a knower of the real gospel. Makes sense to me. I won't be able to do this for every point we make or we'd be here well past lunch, but I do want to talk a minute because I think this is so significant for us. And I want to read for you something that I stole from Mark Seekins, our Life Stage 2 pastor. I didn't actually steal it from him. I asked him if I could have it. He said, okay. He has done some research on something called Course in Miracles by Marian Williamson. It's one of the authors on Oprah's Book Club, and on Oprah's Book Club side every day, it's essentially a new or different lesson. And I want you to hear what this says, and I want you to think about it in light of the real Jesus and in the real gospel and what will happen to our only hope if these things that they say are true. First thing is, there's no sin. A slain Christ has no meaning. The journey to the cross should be the last useless journey. Do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. The name of Jesus Christ as such is but a symbol. It is a symbol that is safely used as a replacement for the many names of all the gods to which you pray. The recognition of God is the recognition of yourself. The atonement is the final lesson that, that man needs to learn, for it teaches him that never having sinned, he has no need of salvation. These are the things we're told. This leaves us without a real God, without the real gospel, and without any hope. And there are times 
when we have to speak up and hold unswervingly to that truth. When I was on student ministry staff here at Christ Chapel, we took a group of high school students one evening to a church in Fort Worth that's involved in some social ministries, and we had our students serving and caring for the needy and the homeless, and we'd been there um, sometimes before. This was not the first time. As a part of it, an individual shared with the group some things about um, God and the gospel, or at least till she defined them. And to explain what it all was was to take too long, but it, needless to say, attacked who the real character of God was. It messed with the Trinity. There was no longer one God and three persons, and which leads to a problem of salvation. Too long to explain. But she said some things that were not true. And so we get back in the van with the students, and I kind of turn the music down. I'm like, hey, you know, she said some things we need to talk about in just a minute. Here's who God is. Here's why. Here's how it matters. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. And one of them maybe, yeah, that didn't seem real right to me. So we explain that. And then because these things were so significant as we thought about them, I had an individual, or we had an individual on our staff, a, a gentleman, and he's real kind and great at doing things like this, and he called the pastor of the church and just said, hey, um, you know, we were at something at your church, and here's what was said, and we just want to understand, is this indeed what your church believes, or are you okay with that, and here's why it concerns us. We were just wondering, does this indeed reflect where you stand? Sometimes things, someone may say something that you know, the church doesn't stand for. And after a long discussion, the um, pastor's answer, in essence, his bottom line's answer was, well, if she feels about that way about God, and if that's what she feels like, then we're okay with that. And we very lovingly and kindly said, thank you, but we are not going to be able to bring our students to serve with you anymore because you're communicating a God who isn't real, a gospel that isn't real. And so we did some research and began to partner with another social ministry in Fort Worth that stands for the real God and for the real gospel. This is one of those areas that we cannot negotiate on. Priscilla had not lost her mind. She knew very clearly the significance of what the reality of the real God and the real gospel was, and she stood up for it. The second thing I want us to see in the life of Priscilla is that she was a mover. I could hardly keep up, keep up with her. It took me forever to figure out where she was and what she was doing. They come from Pontus, then they're in Rome. They go to Corinth, then they're in Ephesus, then they're back in Rome again, then they're in Ephesus, and maybe they even went other places. It was the only ones we could figure out. And I'm like, what's... She's all over the place. And there's a, um, there's sense, there's a sense in which moving around is not necessarily that odd. That's not necessarily uniquely a Christian thing. But often what drives people to move is the false sense of reality that I've put down. And that is that what, we, what you can see and touch matters most. If you're moving because you need a job or your job moves you or there's a security or a family member you have to take, take care of or something you can see and touch, that makes sense to us. We don't really question that. But for someone to make some decisions and move... If it's not based on something we can see and touch, there's some people that kind of look at it this way and go, what are you doing? You're doing what? Why? They can't really see what's driving it. They can't really touch what's driving it. And so they think that you're a little bit silly. And the reality is, the reality that's driving Priscilla is this. It's that our unseen, eternal home and bodies matter most. That's what she's looking at and why she does what she does. Look with me in 2 Corinthians. I want you to see where we get this from. In chapter 4, drop your eyes down to verse 17. 
and see and underline and kind of star the words that you see that, re- that teach us this reality. For in this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Here it is, clearly. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He goes on the beginning of chapter 5 to talk about our heavenly dwelling, the eternal body that we're going to get. And if we understand that Priscilla was not looking at life like this, like it's what we can see and touch that matters, but she was looking at life like this. It's our unseen, eternal bodies that matter. And that causes us to live with that in the forefront of our mind, which may at times cause us to do things that other people look at and think, I don't really get that. But it makes sense to me. Let's see the next thing about Priscilla. She is a risk taker. Certainly, Romans 16, 3 and 4 impacts us. As Paul says of Prissa and Aquila, Paul actually calls her Prissa. Um, it's the same person. It's Priscilla. Luke calls her Priscilla when he writes in Acts. Paul, when he references her, calls her Prissa. He says, Prissa and Aquila, who risked their neck for my, for Paul's life. They're risk takers. They've taken a risk. They've risked their lives for Paul's life, for the sake of the gospel in some form, they're risking their lives. Now, why would you do that? Why do you risk your life? That doesn't make sense. Well, certainly I think we could look back to the reality we just looked at, which is that our unseen eternal homes matter most, our unseen eternal home and bodies. That would make us think that. But I want us to look at something else. Something else I think that really drives risk, that of all the, the realities that I look at, if I in my own heart and mind could grip one more than any, I wish that I could fully, fully in my own life grip this. In chapter 5 of Second Corinthians, as you pull that back out, in verse 14, we read, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Circle that word love. I want to look at the connection between love and risk. Certainly I think we can all imagine how our love for someone might cause us to risk something significant to us. If you have a a child, a family member, a good friend, a parent, you can imagine if their life was in danger risking your life. I don't think that's necessarily too hard to imagine. Maybe it would be difficult, but but I think we can put ourselves in those shoes and we can imagine that. And perhaps we can extrapolate and imagine how love for Christ would cause you to do that. And that's significant, but I also want to look at something else. I wanted to look at the significance of being fully loved and how that causes us to risk. And as I began to think about this, I remembered my younger brother standing on the side of a pool as we were growing up. And you can imagine a small child standing on the side of the pool. Not some of you that have kids that are crazy and adventurous and would do almost anything, but the ones of you that have children that perhaps are a little more cautious. And they're standing on the side of a pool, and they don't swim or don't swim well, and they're looking at this adult, this one that parent or someone they know well, and this person is standing in the pool saying, jump. And you can see, who knows exactly what they're thinking, but you can see in their mind, jump. Now what might happen if I jump? I could experience some significant pain. 
there appears to be some risk. And you see this child kind of going, do I jump or do I not jump? And at times they walk away and they don't jump. But then there are times that you can see this child and there's a little confusion because they see the risk. But then they're looking under the eyes of this parent that from all they can tell so far seems to love them. I mean, they provide food for them, they talk to them, they play to them, they teach them. And you see this tension between this risk and the potential pain, but the person who's asking them to risk and those moments when they stare into the eyes of the one who fully loves them, they do what? They jump. If I really, really knew to the depths of my core how amazingly full and complete and absolutely perfect and powerful God's love for for me was, I think there are times when he tells me to jump when I would look into his eyes, and I would. Why? Because I trust the one who loves me perfectly and is standing in the pool saying, jump. I'm not saying we ignore biblical wisdom. Certainly there are times people have done something in the name of what God told them to do, which is not. That's a talk for another day. This talk is about how as we've really gripped the reality that we are fully loved, We love others, and we are free to live, regardless of the risk. not saying there's never going to be any pain, because God knows sometimes pain is exactly what we need. It is good for us. But the one who fully loves us asks us to jump, and we do. And Priscilla did. Let's look at the next thing about Priscilla. She was a team member. Um... If you look on your sheet, the false sense of reality that we often get caught in is, I can do it. I can do it. I want to talk to you about 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. There are a lot of verses here. I haven't asked you to do this because I did your homework last week and I thought you might be really irritated if I asked you to do it again, so I did it for you. I looked in this passage and I counted the number of times that the words I, my, and me are used. How many times does Paul use that? He uses the word I three times. He never uses the word me, and he never uses the word my. And I counted the number of times he uses we, our, and us. He uses it 67 times. Paul understands we are a part of a team. If you'll notice as you look back at the false realities and the reality and the result... It's I can do it. It's our false sense of reality. The reality is that we need others. And the result of that, we depend on and support the body of Christ. And if you'll note, you may not have, but in every false reality I wrote on this sheet, I used I's, me's, and myself's. In every reality and in every result, I used we and our and us because we are a part of a team. I cannot do the Christian life on my own. If some of you do not encourage me, do not teach me, do not guide me, do not rebuke me, do not point out some things I need to know, if you don't help me, I will not make it. I am a part of a team. I need you. Not just for personal walk with Jesus, but to serve. Adelaide Berger is the person on the Women in the Word who serves in the position of the, on the Women's Board in the place for Women in the Word. And Adelaide is really one of my favorite people at Christ Chapel. She is godly and kind, really loves Jesus. I love Adelaide. She is a gifted and talented woman. 
as much as I love Adelaide, I have a question. Could Adelaide make women in the word on Thursday happen all by herself? Could Adelaide teach and do worship and sit at the tables and put the things on the tables and greet and lead all the small groups and... No. Regardless of how great Adelaide is, we're a part of a team for our own stake, our own spiritual growth, and to serve. We have to have each other. And there are times that we make decisions that other people may think of are nuts because we go against this idea that says, I can do it, and we grip what reality is. We. We. Us. That's the reality Priscilla and Aquila got. Priscilla and Aquila's names are always mentioned together. You never see one without the other. Paul calls them as fellow workers. They're connected to other churches. They are team members, a part of this team, that are working together as a part of the body of Christ. The next thing we see about Priscilla is that she is a worker. Paul says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They are working to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. They were working and they were doing a work that mattered. And I know sometimes this whole word work can get a bad connotation. I know every one of us in the room wish we had more time to rest and less that we had to do. But I think if we're all honest, if all we ever did was rest, I personally would get really bored. I mean, do you not enjoy work that's energizing, that's purposeful? I mean, that's how God made it. Work's not a bad word. Work was around before sin came in. Work isn't a bad thing. But I want something that's energizing. Now, for me personally, cleaning my house is not energizing. I don't really like it. You may like it. Please come over anytime you want. (laughs) However, now something I like, some of you may not like, something that energizes me, and you're all probably going to laugh at me, I love buying Christmas gifts. I love giving gifts to people. I would rather give a gift than get one. No lie. I love that work. It energizes me. I love buying gifts. And I love work that's purposeful. If it's a meeting that I feel like is a waste of my time, if you could see in my heart and how irritated I was, I cannot stand work that's not purposeful. But if it's a meeting and it's something that matters, I don't mind it. None of us mind an energizing, purposeful work. In fact, we all want it. Sure, we'd like to rest a little more. But if all you did was rest, we'd hate it. We all want it. Energizing, purposeful work. And this lie that we get caught up in, this false sense of reality that tends to drive us, is that I need to find a work in life to pursue. Well, I want to think about that for a minute. The reality is that God has given us an energizing, purposeful work to pursue. We need to go find it. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to see this amazingly energizing, purposeful work that God has given us. At the end of the page in the last paragraph in chapter 5, look with me starting at verse 17. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Can you think of anything more purposeful than that? Keep reading with me. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What is more purposeful than being given the task of being a part of God using you to reconcile someone estranged from him to himself? Is there anything more purposeful and energizing than that? I don't think there is. In verse 20, 
it keeps going. We're ambassadors for Christ. That's the work. That's the purpose. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who knew no to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's nothing more significant and purposeful than that. Now, I know we all may play a unique part in that, and I'm not saying don't look for your spiritual gifts or what God's called you as a part of that. But overall, you don't need to look for a purpose in life to pursue. The reality is God has given us an energizing and a purposeful work in life to pursue. And so the natural result of that is that we know and we glorify God by being ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ. And I'm sure there are people that looked at Priscilla and thought, you're doing what? Why? You're giving up what? Why? Didn't make sense to them. And Priscilla knew what God has told us. I'm giving you a life to pursue. A purposeful, energizing work. And so her decisions make sense in light of true reality. Something else we see about Priscilla is that she is the word that I made up that probably really isn't a word, perseverer, but... It had to be consistent with the rest of them, so that's just what I called it. The reason that I say that, unless the verse in 2 Timothy where Paul is greeting them, is because of this. Paul has met Priscilla and Aquila on his second missionary journey, and 2 Timothy is the last letter we have from Paul that he wrote before his death. So Paul, from his second missionary journey, right before his death, is still greeting Priscilla and Aquila because Priscilla and Aquila are still part of the work. They're still keeping on going. They are persevering. They are making it. And one thing that uh, a false sense of reality that at times can certainly hit at my heart, and I imagine yours can as well, can hit at yours as well, is that since God really loves me, I will have a comfortable, easy life. That's how we define it. Well, let's see how that works out. Second Corinthians, head back there again. This time we're going to go a little back toward the top. Chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Let's look at this um, uh, easy life here. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not given to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Easy? Not so much. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. The reality is, absolutely God loves us. And he fully loves us, and there is no question to that. But the reality I've written here is being a Christian isn't always easy. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you already know that. Priscilla knew that. But what's the truth? The mission she was on, the purpose that she'd been given, the reward the blessing of knowing Jesus, of getting to walk with him, of getting to see and experience him, that reward and the end, where she was going in heaven, what was to come, all of those things meant more than the difficulty. So she did what? What was the result? She kept going. We keep going because the mission, the reward of knowing Jesus along the way in the end mean more than the difficulty. I'm sure... There may have been people that looked at her and her journey along the way and thought, what are you doing? Just be done with this whole Christianity thing. This whole Jesus thing, it's costing too much. And if you're looking at it from this angle, okay. But if you're looking at it from reality at the center, it makes perfect sense. Now I know 
that I struggle in a sense with every one of these realities and none of us live and walk in them perfectly. And I would love for you to just pick maybe one this week that you are going to look at, maybe meditate on, head back to 2 Corinthians, look up some other verses. What is that one reality that really tugs at your heart and think, God, sometimes I don't really get that. Sometimes I don't really live like that. I don't, I don't walk like that. What is the one that jumps out to you? And I really encourage you to go home and meditate on and think about that this week and see how, if you're like me, you tend to look at a situation like this and God say, no, Kath, you need to look at it like this. What is the center dead on reality that you need to work on? I um, emailed Celia as I was preparing this talk. Interestingly enough, God still has them on a journey. They were in France for a while, came back to South Carolina and were a part of ministry and started a church. And as of late, God has them on a journey again. Henry recently was asked to serve as the president of the Greater Europe Mission, which for me is particularly exciting in light of what we talked about with Europe uh, about Europe last week. He's going to be the head of that organization, sending people, um, missionaries to Europe for the sake of the gospel. So they are moving yet again, headed to Colorado. And I emailed Celia. I told her I was talking about Priscilla, but I didn't tell her anything about what we were talking about. And I asked her some questions, and I want you to see in her answers how she grips these same realities that Priscilla did. I asked her three questions. I said, Celia, first of all, what are the difficulties? I don't want to overlook the fact that the things that you've done and how you followed Christ can be difficult. How is it difficult? Here's what she says. The obvious. Being away from family and friends, as well as the less obvious. Seeking to maintain a Christ-like witness in a hostile culture. Challenges with kids' adjustment to school and culture. Sending churches and groups that don't understand their role as senders. And then I asked her, and again, I didn't tell her anything we were talking about. I said, what are your joys? What have you loved about this? Here's her answers. Being chosen to be an ambassador for the king of kings. Learning a new culture and language and really beginning to understand it. Seeing God do the miraculous in a person's heart or a people group. Being a part of helping people grow in their walk with God. Encouraging national believers, pastors, and leaders. Relating to churches and groups who understand their role as senders. Do you see the team here? Do you see them moving around, but they're part of a team? They're taking risks. They're standing for the real gospel. They're working hard for this. They're continuing. And then I asked her, I said, why, do, why have you done this? What motivated you? What still motivates you? Why do you do this? Here's her answers. Seeing and understanding the need. Knowing that others would serve where we were in the States, but others might not go where we were going. A sense of adventure which propels us to explore new places and peoples. And then finally, I love her humility and her candor here. She says, ultimately, the glory of God is the only rightful motivation for missionary service. And it was high on our list. But sometimes that's such a lofty thing that it translates into other more mundane things like those you see above. However, we clearly recognize that it's all about him being glorified in the nations. There will, after all, be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation around his throne. And we can play a small part in making that a reality in our generation. That's a reality worth living for. Had Celia lost her mind and her grip of reality? I would say no. She's found a reality worth living for. 
Has Priscilla lost her mind and her grip on reality? No. I would say she's found a reality worth living for. When God looks at you and I and asks us to let go of that false sense of reality that we are gripping in our hands as if it is the key to our life, he says, I want you to let that go. And I want to give you this reality. Has he lost his mind? No. He wants to give us a reality worth living for. Pray with me. Father, as I have studied through this, I recognize that I don't fully grasp and live in any of these realities. But I know I'd like to. And my guess is that everyone sitting in this room can relate to the fact that they don't fully walk in these realities either. But God, I pray for each one of us, me and for every one of my sisters in this room, that each one of us would take a step in really gripping in our heads and in our hearts these realities that you have given us. Because we know that in every reality and everything that you ask us to do as a result, we are staring into the face of one who fully loves us, loved us enough to send his son to die on a cross. Though our heart may question it at moments, oh God, help us grip that reality. I can't believe how much you love us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.